Well, the uh, sermon text for this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. That's uh, on page 1128 in the Pew Bible. Eleven, page 1128, so this is Romans 3. We'll be looking today at 19 and 20, but it's the beginning of Paul's summary of the gospel, and so we'll, we'll read on down through verse 26. So either just listen or read along to this portion of God's Word. This is Romans three nineteen through 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his, his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I don't know about you, but uh, there are not a whole lot of things that, uh, well, except for maybe people that are much younger than, than me here, uh, remember assignments from the sixth grade, <laughs> um, which I believe is uh, around the age of 12. Um, I, I remember when we first moved from Wilkinsburg out to uh, Kiski area, uh, I was uh, placed in the middle of the year in, in uh, sixth grade up here. And I remember a, a specific writing assignment that our, our teacher gave us. And I'm not sure what was in his mind when he asked the question. Um, it was a long time ago. But he asked whether we thought people were basically good, basically bad, or neutral. And we were to write a, a, a small essay on that. And uh, that really stuck in my mind. I mean, I'm a long ways past uh, sixth grade. But I remember the assignment, and I can't remember what my view would have been at the time. Probably neutral, uh, I would guess. But I think that the question is, is still a valid one. And it's one that Paul has been answering all the way through Romans thus far. And his conclusion is not that we're good. And his conclusion is not that we are neutral. His conclusion is that we are all sinners. We are all sinners before the holy God. We are people who are under condemnation. 
We had the uh, Ten Commandments read earlier in the service. And there could be lots of reactions to hearing the Ten Commandments read. We can reflect on the, uh, the glory of the, uh, the holy nature of the God who gave us the law, who gave us the commandments, and that's an appropriate thing to think about. But really, the most appropriate first response to hearing the reading of the word of God is that you and I, as we hear it, recognize that we're horrible people, that we don't keep these things. Especially if you go through the larger catechism and read the details from other scriptures that are laid out of the obligations uh, that are laid on us in the commandments. We are not good people. We are sinful people. And that is a sobering fact, but it's a necessary fact for us to realize, especially in a world that wants to affirm us in all that we are and think and feel. We are sinners, and we stand condemned. And that's a good thing to recognize, even though it is a sober thing to know. Because only when we let that sink in, and that hits us in our hearts, can we really seek to know the solution to that problem. And that is found only in Jesus Christ. And so we'll look today at this portion of God's Word, verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3, and how Paul tells us, and God tells us through Paul, that we are sinners who are guilty before God, so that we might look for that solution, that one solution in Jesus Christ. We begin first uh, with the law speaks, condemns, and holds us accountable in verse 19. And the last time we looked at verse, verses 9 through 18 of chapter 3, and there Paul summarized the argument that he had been making in chapter 1 and, and in chapter 2 and, and so far in chapter 3 as well, that all people, Gentiles and Jews, are sinful and under the just wrath of of the holy God. Chapter 1 focused on the sin and guiltiness of all uh, Gentiles, or, or all non-Jews. And chapter 2 focused on the sin and guiltiness of all Jews. In verses 1 through 8 of our chapter, Paul answered possible objections uh, to his arguments. And then in verses 19, 9 through 18, rather, Paul supported his teaching with a series of Old Testament quotations which clearly showed that God's word in the Old Testament and as Paul has given it thus far, tells us that each and every person is a sinner and guilty before the Holy God. As Paul stated in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In today's verses 19 and 20, Paul draws to a conclusion all he's written so far in the letter, that we are all guilty before God as we stand before him in his courtroom. When our lives, our thoughts and words and deeds are held up against the requirements of God's law, every single person is found guilty. No one will be justified. No one will be acquitted no one will be found to be righteous and totally obedient to all of God's laws when our lives are held up against it. 
God's holy law condemns us, and it totally removes any assumption or aspiration that we might have of being good enough to merit eternal life or merit acquittal. And we will stand before God at our deaths and on the last great day. And when we do, based on who we are, we stand condemned and deservedly so. Of course, there is hope. We, we know from, from the rest of, of Romans 3 that there is hope. But it is good to sit in this condemnation. And God would have us to do that so that we recognize our need of Christ and move toward him. It is necessary for the sinner to know in your heart and in your soul the shame and the guilt and the weight of the condemnation upon you for your sins against the holy and good and almighty God who made you and to whom you must answer. On your own and on my own, you and I are hopelessly headed for hell. And we need to embrace that truth. And then fully appreciate the wonderful and amazing offer of forgiveness and reconciliation and justification that comes by God's grace alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Well, Paul begins in verse 19 by writing, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Uh, with the words, now we know, Paul is transitioning uh, from the series of Old Testament quotations in 9 through 18 to now drawing conclusions from them and really drawing conclusions from everything that he said thus far in the letter. Paul refers here to what the law says. And the law uh, here uh, refers uh, to the quotations he's just given. Uh, he's segueing from them. And so he refers back to them as the law. And you may recall that these quotations were from five different psalms and uh, uh, one, one section of Isaiah. Now, sometimes the law in Scripture refers to the five books of Moses uh, or the Ten Commandments specifically or the, the legal content that's found in the laying out of the, the civil and ceremonial and moral laws in the books of Moses. But law, as it's used here and sometimes elsewhere, can also refer to the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. And it contains God's requirements. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments, but also includes all kinds of other content as well. It promises history, the gospel, and its Old Testament expression, and all sorts of other things. But notice that Paul is referring back to these quotations and he says that it speaks. The law speaks. I don't want to make a huge deal out of this, but it is interesting the, the, grammatically that he uses a present active verb. You could easily speak of the law in the past tense, right? Because it's an old book. But he writes of it in the present tense. And so the point is that even though these quotations were from portions of Scripture that were written up to a thousand years earlier, they still speak with authority in the present day. It is not an outdated or irrelevant book, but it is God's eternal and enduring word, and it speaks in the present tense to us today, 
in its authority as God's word. As we're reminded in Hebrews 4 and 12, the word of God is living and active. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And so, when Paul quoted from Scripture, he did so because God's word is authoritative and impactful, and God uses it to speak to our consciences and our hearts. Notice that Paul states that the law speaks to those who are under the law. And so we might ask, well, who is he referring to here? Who is under the obligations of the law? Well, it certainly includes all Jews. But it also includes all Gentiles as well. Uh, you may recall from verses 9 through 18 that the quotations as we walked through them last time uh, were, were a, a different in their original audiences. For instance, uh, verses 10 through 12 are a quotation from Psalm 14, which addresses human beings generally as God looks down upon humanity and sees the universal rejection and disregard of him and his law. He sees a world where every person without exception is a sinner. We saw there in 10 through 12, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And verses 15 through 17 are a quotation of Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, which note Israel's sinful rebellion against the Lord and his law. And and also speaks there of the universal sin of mankind as seen in Israel. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And this echoes what Paul has been teaching all the way through chapters 1 and 2. That all people know that God exists. Know that he's good and awesome and wonderful know that they're answerable to him. And yet we do not thank him and we do not obey him as we must. Paul said in Romans 1, in 21, 25, and 28, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. God puts a sense of the Ten Commandments, the summary of his law, into human hearts, into every human heart, the deepest part of who we are. And we break it. We violate it and our own consciences tell us and convict us that we are sinners. Paul said in Romans 2, 14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In fact, Paul says that all people, even those who have never read a Bible or heard the written word of God, know that they deserve punishment for breaking God's law. Yet they continue to do that. 
and continue to approve other people in their sins. He said in Romans 1 and 32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they don't only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And in chapter 2, Paul pointed to the sin and condemnation of of self-righteous Jews who have God's written law and look down on the Gentiles who break it, and yet they themselves fail to keep it. He said in Romans 2, 1 and 2, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We also saw that the Jews tried to claim immunity from God's law and from condemnation, thinking that their status as God's chosen people and their religious activities, including circumcision, saved them. And when we looked at that, we saw that that same thing can be true of people who come to church and who believe that the religious activities of church reconcile them to God. But we also noticed along the way, as Paul pointed out, that when the outward signs of, of, of religion, be that Old Testament or New Testament practice, when we fail to internalize those outward signs and privileges and fail to acknowledge our sinfulness and our need to repent, and fail to take hold of Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, then those religious deeds are are of no benefit to us. These Jews, these self-righteous people, and and any self-righteous person in a church is presuming on God's forgiveness and and, uh, forgiveness of sins when they do not take hold of Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans 2, 3 through 5, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things or, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so Paul then summarizes this universal truth that all people and every individual is under God's law, under obligation to it, be it written on the heart or written on the pages of the Bible that they've read and heard. And every one of us fails to keep it. Many church people are quick to see how God's laws and condemnation applies to those people in the world. And there's no end of examples that we can point to. But we, we must first see how that applies to us, how that applies to me and to you, because we do not keep God's law either. You are just as guilty and I am just as guilty as the sinners out in the world. And you need to own that truth. You need to embrace that in the deepest part of who you are. Because it's true, and it's necessary to know in your heart and in your soul if you are to truly know your need of a Savior. 
Paul writes in verse 19, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Uh, the language used here is courtroom language uh, with each, as each of us stands before God as our judge and we stand before him in judgment. And as that's done, notice that every mouth is closed as the law speaks. That is, when our lives and our thoughts and words and deeds are, are prosecuted, are presented in a courtroom setting, as all of the evidence is laid out, as our lives are held up against the standard and the requirements of God's law, your mouth and my mouth and every mouth is closed. Commentator Douglas Moo writes, shutting the mouth connotes the situation of the defendant who has no more to say in response to the charges against him or her. And so the picture in the courtroom setting is there is no room for, oh yeah, but, or you don't know the circumstances, or that wasn't really me, or any of those sorts of things. There is no response. We are left speechless and guilty because there is no defense. There is no excuse. There is no avoidance of the clear guilt that is ours when held up against the perfect law of God. In his courtroom, we are left with closed mouths and we are declared guilty. Notice then that Paul adds, and all the world may become accountable to God. Uh, the Greek word translated accountable means answerable to or even liable to persecution or prosecution, excuse me. And so each and every human being, a Jew and Gentile, all people of the world who have ever lived and who live now or who will live, stand before God, the judge of all people, and are held accountable for our guilt as we are violators of God's holy law. And there are no exceptions. Jews are not excused due to privilege. Gentiles aren't excused for not hearing God's written word. All know God's law and all break it. And there is tremendous evidence against each one of us as being a sinner. Commentator Robert Haldane writes, Before the tribunal of God, there will be no more illusions of conscience, no more excuses, no way to escape condemnation. His knowledge is infinite, and from him nothing can be concealed. Before him, therefore, every mouth will be stopped and all the world must confess themselves guilty. And so, if you think you're good enough to merit God's approval in heaven, then this scripture and all that Paul has been saying thus far in Romans tells you that you're profoundly, profoundly wrong. Thinking yourself better than others will not be sufficient. You do things that you know are wrong. You don't do things you know that you're required to do. You lie. You desire what other people have. You hate. You gossip. You lust. You say things that you shouldn't. You fail to serve God with all that you are and do. 
You serve replacements for God, idols in all sorts of things and activities and people that you put before Him. You think things that are sinful. You say things that are sinful. You do things that are sinful. And before God, who knows all things, you are very guilty, as am I. In His courtroom, we are guilty. Well, second, no one is justified by works, for the law proves each of us sinners in verse 20. Here Paul continues the courtroom image and confirms our guilt before God our judge by stating firmly that no human being will be justified, will be acquitted of the charges against you by the works of the law, that is, by your obedience to the law of God. Simply put, there is absolutely no possibility of you or me or any of us standing before God in his courtroom and pointing to all of our thoughts and words and deeds and by our obedience being justified, declared innocent and acquitted and, and meriting eternal life by our good deeds. Notice that Paul uses the word flesh here to refer to human beings. And this usage is, is found many places in Scripture, uh, including, for instance, Genesis 3 uh, or 6 and 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. There are positive references as well. Psalm 145 and 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. But the description of humans as flesh really reminds us of our weakness and our frailty and our neediness and mortality. It is humbling to be referred to as flesh because it makes us reflect on how how frail we really are. We are flesh. And we're reminded in, in this passage that we are sinful creatures. That we are guilty before God. That we are unable to meet the righteous requirements of God's law. Ecclesiastes 7 and 20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Sadly, however, the Jews thought their status as God's people and their circumcision and their religion gave them immunity from judgment and that they could merit salvation by good works. But none of us keeps the requirement of perfect obedience to God's moral law. None of us keeps the covenant of works, the obligation that God placed on Adam and all of us for personal and perfect obedience to God's law with the promise of eternal life by that obedience. Adam failed and we failed. And so to rely on your obedience, your goodness, your righteousness, to merit acquittal and approval before you stand before, as you stand before God is simple, uh, a recipe for failure. It will not work. You're not that good, nor am I. In fact, we're not good at all. Paul writes in Galatians 3 and 10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. No one does all of the law perfectly. 
you and I don't even come close. And that is the standard. In fact, the law serves not as a means of earning eternal life by works of righteousness, not by encouraging us in our goodness as we hear it read, but rather to point out our sinful failures. As Paul writes in our verse 20, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By the law we are shown to be sinners. The law of God shows us that we are guilty of sin and deserving of the wrath of God. When we hear or read or think on the Ten Commandments, as was read earlier, and we seek to apply them to our lives in all of their depth, we should and must be horrified at what we find in our hearts and in our thoughts and in our behavior. The law of God written in the Bible and written on our hearts shows us to be sinners. As Paul said earlier in verses 9 through 11, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And John writes in 1 John 1 and 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You must see your condemnation and guilt and be fully convinced in your heart that you stand before the holy God as a wicked sinner who has earned nothing but hell and you have no defense for the charges that are brought against you because you know that you are guilty as charged. Westminster Shorter Catechism number 82 states, No mere man since the fall is able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And really all we need to do is, is prayerfully and thoughtfully think on our past actions today or last week to know the truth of that. Now that is a grim and sad reality, but it's a necessary truth to grasp. We need to see our lost and condemned condition if we are to see our need of a Savior. Now next week, Lord willing, uh, well, okay, not next week, the week after that, Lord willing, we will look at uh, the good news in verses 21 through 26, which we'll get to uh, touch on later in, in a moment here. But our acceptance of the bad news is, is, uh, is essential to our appreciation and taking hold of the good news. You and I are guilty, and we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves better or approvable from here on. We will continue to sin, and we still have that lifetime of sins that we've already committed. And if we are to avoid what we deserve, our rescue, our acquittal, our justification has to come from somewhere else because it can't come from us. And that is why Paul then points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God the Son, the eternal second person of the triune God, who became also fully man to be the saving substitute of those who cannot save themselves. In our verse 20, we're told, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Jesus Christ is God 
who took on human flesh, who became also one of us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We're told in John 1, 1 and 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came to be that saving substitute. Jesus fully obeyed all of God's laws, which we fail to do. And on the cross, He took the wrath of God due to His people for their sins upon Himself. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. So all of the wrath of God against all of the sin of, of His people who have ever lived, was poured upon Jesus as He hung on the cross. He suffered, and He knew God's wrath, and He died, and He was buried. He took the curse and the penalty upon Himself. But on the third day, God the Father raised Him from the dead as an accepted sacrifice and as a living Savior in whom there is eternal life. And all those who trust in Jesus and His saving work and His resurrection are covered in His righteousness, are forgiven by His sacrifice, are justified by God in His courtroom, and reconciled into the fellowship and eternal life of the triune God. Romans 3 will go on to say, But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. But we are justified not by anything we do, but by what Christ has done for us. As He obeyed for us and we're covered in His righteousness. As He took the wrath which was due to us. That's a propitiation. He, he uh, reconciled us to God by taking that wrath upon Himself. And so this is the good news. As we've seen in today's verses, no one of us can earn or deserve justification. And yet God freely offers it as a gift. And He calls us to take hold of this promise. Embrace Jesus Christ by trusting faith. Repent of your sins. And know in your heart that your sins make you filthy before the Holy God. But you have the covering of the righteousness of Christ to justify you in His courtroom. And so there is sobering truth here to recognize our sin. But there is wonderful, glorious, amazing, wonderful news of God's grace and forgiveness and His gift of salvation. And in that salvation, we are given a new life. And we are no longer slaves to sin. And the Holy Spirit indwells us. And He bears fruit of godliness in us. 
and we are, we are able to live for Him. And so for those who have already experienced God's grace and salvation, rejoice in this passage and in the Gospel because you recognize your sin. In a world where people make excuses for themselves or think they're good enough or judge themselves by others or simply don't care. God has convicted you of your sins. Convicted you that you are under judgment. And he has brought you to the wonderful hope of the gospel and that you have embraced that. And by his grace, you are reconciled to him and you have eternal life and fellowship with him. And so rejoice in that. And if you have not taken hold of Jesus by trusting faith, if you're denying that you are sinful, then I would encourage you to think on this passage and all that Paul has said thus far in Romans and quit pretending you are not good. You are not perfect. And that is the standard. And so admit and confess your guilt and come to Jesus Christ and embrace him by faith and all that he has done. You are a sinner under God's judgment. But there is the offer of the gospel that you do not have to stay under that judgment. That when you come to Christ, he will take that upon himself in what he has done on the cross. And so I encourage you to take hold of Jesus and know that wonderful gift of salvation. And we'll close with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. We do thank you for this hard word that we are sinners. May, may none of us think of ourselves as good enough or better than others and deny the, the grim truth that we are sinners against the holy God and that left to ourselves, we will be held accountable for those sins. May you convict us of those things, but may you convict us in hope that there is a solution to our condemnation. And that is that Jesus took that condemnation on himself on the cross. And in his earthly life, he perfectly obeyed the law where we failed to do it. May we take hold of Christ and may we rejoice in the salvation that is ours in him. And may we seek uh, to see others around us brought to salvation through this same gospel. May you be at work, we pray as uh, we, we, we uh, effort to bring people under the gospel, that you would convict and that you would bring hope and that you would save those around us who do not yet know Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.